Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Try to be resilient. Luck is a huge part of life, and when things go wrong or right, it is often not down to you. Those are the words of my guest today, Lord Waldegrave of North Hill. His memoir, A Different Kind of Weather, is described by the Sunday Times as the diary of a somebody in all its italicized glory. Taking a sideways look at his own ambition, William reflects on the addictive nature of politics and the need to follow your own path. And it is that ambition and the path it led him down that we will be reflecting on today. William, welcome to Changemakers. Let's discuss um, that ambition. I'd like to start with that quote, if I may. Try to be resilient. Luck is a huge part of life. And when things go wrong or right, it is often down to you. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, thanks, Michael. It's a great pleasure to be with you and the very distinguished list of people you've been talking to and will talk to. Well, starting with luck, luck of the circumstances in which you're born. I was very lucky in my background. I, I had a wonderful education. I had good family who were supportive and loving and lots of brothers and sisters. I'm the youngest of seven. It was a tribal upbringing, if you like. And we were pretty well off by anyone's standards and lived in a beautiful place. So that's a bit of luck to start with. Now, the next thing is resilience. Well, we'll come back to what took me into politics, I guess, later on. But if you're going into any of the, what you might call the performing trades, and that they all have a lot in common, where you have to go out and persuade people, and you, and you have to go and, and you have to ride waves, and you have to deal with extreme competition often. Well, then resilience without resilience, sometimes also known as the thick skin, is you're not, you're not in the right trade if you're going to be hit, knocked over by every wave or deeply depressed by every criticism. Then uh, what was the third of the trio in that sentence, Michael? Well, it's often not down to you. Luck is a huge part of life. Well, it's often not down to you. Yeah, I, mean, a... I often think of my friend, a genuine friend and mate, Jack Straw, who was actually in the end, like, did get to high office and was a very good Home Secretary. But for the first N years of his life, all through what he must have thought at the time was his prime, the opposite party, the Conservative Party, was in power and Jack was out of power a year after year after year after year. So he must have thought I'd missed my chance. He hadn't, in fact, because he was young enough and, and Tony Blair was wise enough to appoint him to high office. But he could have had the whole of his, through no fault of his own, out of office. Let's wait, though, to get onto the politics. I just want to stay just a little bit in your early life, because as you know, I greatly enjoyed the book, A Different Kind of Weather. And I think there is an early part of the book where you describe traveling by train on the Earl Waldegrave train, I believe it was. And this this sudden sort of realization that probably not everybody was traveling on, on a named train or a train named after their own, own family. At the same time, you talk about your mother as your biggest inspiration because of her resilience. So I just thought it would be just worth chiseling a little bit in terms of those early days, in terms of how that started to prepare your own sense of journey in the world, your own sense of, I guess, those first chapters of how ambition might unpack for you. Yeah. 5057, the old Walgrave Castle class locomotive on the Great Western region, which sometimes one was lucky, took one to prep school from uh, Bath Station to Swindon Station or on to Paddington and the Walgrave Arms pub in the village and so on. And people calling my sisters, people who worked for us, calling them Lady Ginny and Lady Sally and calling me Mr. William in a very old fashioned uh, setup. 
So, uh, well, of course, as a child, you think that what's around you is normal. It's but, normal, uh, yeah. But at some point, you begin to realize this isn't normal. This not, is, every, not everyone's got a train. Not everyone's got a train, <laughs> yeah. or at least not a full-size one. So you, you, you begin to think, my goodness, I'm lucky. And then you begin to think, because if you're a thoughtful person, you begin to think at all, and you're surrounded by, as I was, by highly competitive siblings, all, all older than me, you begin to think, well, how, how do I live up to this? And how don't I get left behind? Or in my particular family, five elder sisters and an elder brother, how do I ever get a word in edgeways in this place? So you, you, you begin to learn a, a certain resilience. And I'm rather in favor of big families for that reason. Mm -hmm. But my mother, now she came, her father was somebody you'd have been fascinated by. He made and lost two enormous fortunes. He was called Arthur Grenfell. He had a company called Select Trust. 1911, I think it was, he fell off his horse out hunting, handed the company over, which was what you might politely call highly geared. And it was at that stage, almost as big as Mr. Mr. Cecil Rhodes's company. And he fell off his horse, was out of action for six months, gave it to his brother, who was a very decent man, who subsequently was killed in the First World War as a soldier. And the company was bust when he, uh, within, uh, and it was a nearly a systemic failure. The, the Benson Bank uh, rescued it and the Bank of England was concerned, and so on and so forth. So she started off in immense wealth around her. Then he went past, and he worked his way back up, and he was speculating in chrome when the Second World War hit. And his chrome was in Yugoslavia, not a very good place for the next 50 years. So he went past again. So her life went up and down. And she had polio as a girl, as many people did in those days. And then she had a child, she had my eldest sister, and she fell off her horse riding and broke her back and was told by the doctors that it was far too risky for her ever to try to have another child. Mm. So she didn't have one, she had six. <laughs> she was tough. And all my life, I could see, I mean, everyone says their mother's the rock on which they're built, and it's always true in some sense, but that the whole thing was held together by her courage. Do, do you think that her life inspired you to say to the Times Higher Education Supplement when asked the question, what's your biggest regret? You answered, not taking enough risks when I was younger. Do you, do you think that risk-taking, well, explain it to us in, in terms yeah. of, I suppose, the relationship between your past and then actually how you lived your life? Well, I think that she certainly sought security after that very bumpy childhood, up and down. And the old gent who was alive in my, when I was a child, her father, sitting, who'd been bailed out by my father, I think, and he was sitting in an armchair saying, bloody fellow Tito, because Tito had nationalized his chromium mine. And he hadn't got a bean in the world. And he'd at one time had Titian pictures, which are now in the Frick collection in New York and so on and so on. When he died, he hadn't got anything at all. Mm. And I think she sought security. And I think I picked up a little bit of that. I loved the settled world that she'd created. And I was always looking for settled worlds, I think. And I think that probably I should have taken a bit more risk before one gets into having too many obligations to one's own children. So, so what would you mean by, is that career risks? Is it, is it yeah. life risks? Uh, both really. I mean, I think, I think instead of going, got a wonderful job very early on working in the center of government in a, a civil service unit, working with the late Lord Rothschild, and then I became Teddy Heath's political secretary when he fell from power. What did I do? I didn't go out and try and form my own business. I went and got a job with Arnold Weinstock in what was then the biggest corporation in the country, employed 160,000 people. I should have gone out then and said, let me have a go, let me try and, and do something on my own. I've always, mm -hmm. I think, taken the, 
I've been a big organization person, perhaps, and uh, I rather wish when I was younger I'd been brave enough done to done something different. Myself. But but I suppose while you were at school, you wrote that your ambitions were to go from foreign secretary to prime minister, and finally, after many years of triumph, a grace a graceful retirement from politics to produce the definitive translation of Thucydides. In terms of that story, so by the way, it sounds very similar to our current prime minister's uh, career trajectory, but I mean, that aside, this is a fairly you know, story of institutional ambition, isn't it, in terms, yeah. of, in terms of what you wanted to achieve? Well, that, that was at the heart of, of, of what drove me. It was, and the two have to be set against each other. The glittering prizes, a, a phrase that I think goes back to F.E. Smith, the, the Lord Chancellor, brilliant debater, and then Freddie Raphael wrote a good novel called that, going for the glittering prizes. I was certainly enamoured of that. I accelerated up to be good at winning scholarships, good at winning debating competitions, became president of the Oxford Union, got a, fellow, a prize fellowship at All Souls, went for the glittering prizes. The old, what the Romans would have called cursus honorum, of then going in the House of Commons and an upward trajectory. It's a pretty misleading way of leading your life, I've come mm. to the conclusion in the end. It should be the other way round, that you should be aiming to do certain things, and if they get applause, good luck. But if they don't, it doesn't mean they're the wrong things. You know, the man who wrote what I think is the greatest modern novel, Lampedusa, The Leopard, he never even saw the bloody thing published. And yet mm. it's a great, great novel. Um, so, so, the, so the love of the crowd early on. It's it dangerous. In- it's dangerous. Mm. Um, it's dangerous, I think, to go for, for, for the applause rather than to go for the product, if you like. Go for what you're actually trying to create. Do you think that if you could have your time again now, that the conditions of... Britain today would be would mean a very different William Waldegrave in terms of the way that you approach life and the way that perhaps you you would go on to lead it. Well, to unpack your question a bit, if you had one's life over again, I genuinely think one would probably do better. I, I'm certain I'd be a better minister a second time round, and that's why one of my favourite phrases. Well, why is that, William? Why why would you be better? Second well, time? for example, if you know who. <laughs> If it, I, I was too concentrated on the next job up, and I think I would have learned that you have a far better chance of really achieving success if you grapple with some big problems early on, take risks back to this again, take more risks with your career to get it right. A central episode in my political career was inventing, well, being one of the inventors, but I think it wouldn't have happened without me, the poll tax. Now, the poll tax was a catastrophe, actually. It was, a, mm. it was a clever, silly thing to try. And I did it because I was really, if I'm totally honest... First, first thing my producer came and pointed out, oh, he said, your guest today created the poll tax. And I'm <laughs> That's it. going to enjoy listening That's to it. when he talks about that. Yeah. Well, and why did I do that? Because I was set an intellectual conundrum by the Prime Minister and I produced a clever, silly solution to it which pleased her, and on she went with it, Mrs. Thatcher. Mm. Now, what I should really have had the courage to do was to look at it and say, actually, there are various things wrong with the domestic rates, but having a, having a, a tax on fixed property of that kind is actually extremely sensible, and you narrow your fiscal base without it. And, in, and prove the presence. And now she might not have liked that. She might not have promoted me, but it would have but, been right in the long term. But I suppose I'm not so much saying what, what would happen if I allowed you to, to address the same set of circumstances yeah. again. I'm wondering that 
here we are in 2021 and many of the things that you have spent your life building, Provost of Eton, the Rhodes Scholarship, what a lot of people would sort of frame as privilege, find themselves under assault, find themselves being questioned. And I wonder if you were born now, do you think you would have, do you think your social values would reflect the changes that are going on in society, the evolution, the revolution, however you choose to frame it right now? Or do you think that that kind of more, I guess, institutional respect, that that institutional connection and commitment would have remained a part of your character, given where we are now? Very difficult to say. Two things to say to that. One is that if you go for prizes and applause and the, the existing structures, there's always the danger that when you've got to the top of them, they've just got out of date because the structures have been built in the previous era. Mm. And I've, I've noticed a certain amount of that in, in my lifetime. On the other hand, there's a curious symmetry in that I was born just after the Second World War, brought up my first memories are really of the end of the Aptic government and the early, early Conservative governments under really run by Macmillan and Butler and so on. And there was a conscious sense of building a new country, the new Elizabethans and so on. So curiously enough, there's a sense of that around now that we've got to rebuild again. Then it was the shadow of the Second World War, but it's going to be the shadow of the combination of the financial crisis and even more of COVID, showing that the networked world that we took as being the obvious solution to everything isn't quite so much an obvious solution to things and that we've got to rebuild again. So in a funny way, there's some similarities with my earliest memories. But at the same time, I mean, as a keen student of philosophy and a keen student of history, is that there is also a change in the way that we are approaching the human condition, the way we are approaching our relationship with the past. We saw last year major civil rights demonstrations. And of course, you know, you spent a lot of your formative years at Harvard and the Kennedy School in the late 60s, which was another moment of great civil rights change. In terms of what you learn from that, in terms of the way that that progress happens, change happens, change that can lead to positive outcomes, are are there lessons from the past? Or is it, as we sometimes hear people just talk about the fact that almost history is almost a disgraced chapter, if you will, in terms of the way people look back on the lives of others? I mean, how... How do you see it? I think it's vital to look at, to, to learn one of the things from history, which is that the movements in things, whether they're progress or regress, are stochastic, they're going jumps. And there was one of those periods going on when I was a young teenager and later, when, as I think I say in my book, the smell of tear gas was ran right across Europe, France in 68, Greece of the colonels, then in the States, the human rights movement, riots at Harvard when I was there, much more violent in many respects than now. We've been very sort of respectable and law-abiding for a long time. Mm. And now I think there will be a, a, a moving of the continental plates, if you like, again, whether it's for better or worse. I don't believe in a, at all in inevitable progress. Things can get worse. And, and uh, so if we don't do the right things, but there's an opportunity now because a lot of, a lot of the structures have shown that they didn't really work quite so well as we thought. But, but is there a, a realism also? Because, you know, one of the things that comes out in the book is really your conclusion that in politics, modest change is about what you can come to expect and actually not getting things wrong is really the, the, the daily obsession. I mean, in, with that kind of backdrop, can we ever marry off the obvious appetite for quite 
significant change against a system which is geared towards steps rather than leaps? Well, look, I'm a small C and a big C conservative. So I believe that the man is a political animal and lives in communities and that it's much easier to break communities up than it is to build them. So I have respect for institutions, but institutions have to change all the time. And sometimes you have to say that institution is now actually out of date and <laughs> we put it to rest. I think that most revolutions do more harm than good. I think the Russian Revolution did more harm than good. I think the French Revolution did more harm than good. So great big single theories imposed often by violence or often as a result of violence are usually disastrous in my view. So mm -hmm. I am a tremendous believer that though everything flows and everything changes all the time, part of the skill of statesmanship and of managing a company or anything else is to harness the change without destroying the enterprise. At the moment, we're wrestling with how to build a new country in terms of the inclusion of different racial uh, groups and different aspects of people's perception of gender, for example. And somehow we've got to do that without knocking the whole thing down. <laughs> So that we have to start all over again. And I, I, and I suppose the question is, is that, that, that people that want the revolution will say, well, look, I hear that. And that's, that's a really, you know, beautifully expressed expression. But actually, without the revolution, you can't make the change. And I suppose this is this is the sort of push and pull of the of this moment in time in terms of, well, how do you make change happen in societies that badly need it? Well, I would say to people who say we need the revolution, do you think that Mao Zedong advanced China or put them back 50 years? I think put them back 50 years. And the guys who've actually made China the greatest economy in the world, or about to be the greatest economy in the world, have been incredibly cautious, or ruthlessly cautious, one might say, about not allowing the change to be accompanied by social chaos. So, and that's what causes their ruthlessness, to, to some extent, is very dangerous uh, ruthlessness. That's the anxiety. So the skill, and it's always a balance, uh, the skill is to let the change come without bringing down the structures all over your, mm. uh, on your head in a way that then lets anarchy come out of it. Now, in the book, the moment where I just could really feel it is a moment where you are attending cabinet during the Falklands War, and there is a moment where you look at then Mrs. Thatcher as prime minister and come to some conclusions about your own ambition and where you're going to go with your own life. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is a difficult thing in everyone's life, isn't it? I, I remember thinking at that time, and I thought all my sort of conscious adult life, I'm going to pitch to be prime minister. I'm going to try and get to the top of the greasy pole, as Disraeli called it. That's what I want to do. And I watched somebody in a crisis and I thought, I couldn't do that. I couldn't actually do it as well as she was doing it or have the resilience and the sheer strength and courage, whatever else you think of her, to do. I didn't have that in me. Now, that didn't mean I was worthless. And I suppose everybody has something like this in their life at some point that you, you realize that some of your ambitions are beyond your reach. And then it's quite an important thing. I'm not sure, saying I got it right at all. Somehow to have the capacity to say, that doesn't mean life isn't worth living. You know, mm. I'm, I'm not giving up because I'm not going to be Winston Churchill or Gladstone. Well, well it's quite interesting there because one of the reviews I read, which I thought was laugh out loud, face of most memoirs end with the, with the end of ambition rather than start, which is of course how you address it in the book, which is that in many respects, the the story is about going up the hill 
getting to a certain a certain level on that hill and then realizing that actually your life might go in other directions and i suppose the question is after that moment in terms of your life and what ambition has meant to you as a person that's gone on to do a great many other things and somebody i think who gets a lot of meaning from from family and other sorts of parts of their life is that does is it the fact that you looked at it and said, well, I'm not ambitious enough, or actually my ambition might take me in other areas. I might redefine it for other parts of my life. I think what I discovered was that I was defining ambition wrongly, that a single glittering prize ambition is is incredibly dangerous and probably wrong, because even to be someone who achieves that single glittering prize ambition, you have to have a much wider base, probably. Mm. So luckily for me, I have an extremely happy personal family life, my own wife and family. And at the moment of the birth of my first child, I found like everybody has found since the beginning of time that the whole world changed. That there's now something more important than you and more important than any ambition of yours, which is looking after your child. And you suddenly find in the old phrase that you're only as happy as your least happy child if you've got more than one child. And all that, the world changes and that changes you for the better. But I I also came more and more in my life to respect what you might call in the broad sense, the crafts person. That is the person who knows how to do something properly and create something. Now, it may be actually making something, a beautiful thing or an efficient thing, or but it may be making a really good company or it may be plowing a field properly. Doing something properly is, I have concluded, (laughs) nothing very original about that, the way to lasting happiness, because you can look back in it and say, that was good, that was done properly. The danger with these vaunting ambitions and glittering prizes and wanting cheering crowds is that that's all a bit, nobody's going to know whether that's really well done until the historians have written it a hundred years later. Well, well, that's right. But also it leaves, I've always wondered about this with a lot of, a lot of the kind of big political beasts is that there's often, you often get a sense of something quite haunted and hollowed out about them after their their time in office in terms of obviously I don't know but my 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 suspicion is that this is about meaning and purpose and possibly the absence of it after that kind of you know Westminster or Washington or whatever it might be career has been I mean is that the price of the modern political career on the whole, do you think? I think it's. I think it was always that's all through history. I write in my book about think, sitting in my ministerial car one day and looking out of the window and thinking, catching myself thinking, what are all these people doing out there? They haven't got, I'm, I've got, I'm inside the car, I've got the secrets, I'm in charge of this, I'm in charge, I'm, I'm you know, what are they all doing? And I suddenly realized that's a completely mad Getting along thought. with it. <laughs> it's a completely mad thought. They're, they're living lives just as satisfactory as yours and probably as just as important, more important. And at that point, I realized I'd got the addiction. And by then, the electric came to my rescue because they tossed me out. So I was mm. from it. So do you think then that the ambition properly set is about a successful ability to answer the question of what is meaning to me. I, I think it's it, what what is meaning or what is good, what is value. Um, I, I think there's much more in common between the ambition of, of a creative artist or a creative performer, a good musician, a good, or as I say, a man of rowing was my sport, the person who can actually make that rowing boat go properly. There's much more in common between that kind of craft and good and happy life in any sphere than people have thought. 
So people may say that's a sentimental thought, but I don't think it is. And the politicians mm. who I think have retired happy, and there aren't many of them, because there's always something that comes along and really annoys them. But Michael Heseltine, for example, I admire greatly. Now he's furious about his coming out of Europe, so he's not happy at all. But he, whether or not he became prime minister, he knew he'd done some things that really had made a difference to people's life. I mean, Canary Wharf wouldn't be there without Michael, mm. and so on. Those things were actually measurably undone. I I interviewed him some years ago. He said he wanted his legacy to be remembered as an entrepreneur with Haymarket. (laughs) Well, exactly. Rather than political. So I I suppose that that question about the next step being important. Let's just focus on the next steps for a nation, because you've written about the UK in a post-Brexit environment. And I suppose the thing that has changed since you were writing is, of course, the pandemic, but your point was that Britain lacks a national narrative now that we can get our heads around. Since you wrote that, do you think we've become more or less able to achieve that goal in terms of where we are going as a group of 67 million or so people? Well, what worries me is this, that I think it is perfectly possible for Britain to develop a really satisfying narrative for, for herself as a nation based around very high grade, as high grade as we can make them, education and skills and creativity, all the things we seem to be extremely good at. It's wonderful that we're the world center of gaming and you know, all these things that would come, come out of nowhere, usually far from the cognizance of government, <laughs> incidentally, but that's another subject. And the things that we are good at, we have learned, we've got to learn it all over again with new communities that to our benefit have joined us. We have learned something about how to make a national community. Now, those things we can do and do them really well. What worries me is that it's a bit like my glittering crazy story. We're still aiming to be a superpower as we were when the name superpower was invented just after the Second World War. It was invented for the USSR, the USA and Britain as the three great powers then existing. The British Empire, which rather rapidly turned out not to be quite as powerful as that. And But to aim at being something you can never happily be is perhaps like me aiming to be a prime minister like Israeli or that's no Churchill. I could never do that. You make yourself unhappy there. So I'm, I'm wondering what your own version is then. If, if your advice to Britain is to give up its permanent seat on the UN Security Council, what, what would your advice have been to yourself in terms of that level of advice? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I think I would have, my advice to myself would have been to really learn an area. Don't just go and work for Arnold Weinstock as his, as his PA and, and, you know, but if you want to be an industrialist, if you want to go and get your own business or go... Go and unleash your ambition. Go and do it and then become yep. something so that you're always that thing and then try and learn, apply the skills you've learned there more widely. And I would have probably been better... But uh, what, what worries me, and I, I provocatively said Britain should, you know, stop trying to have, have a big nuclear power and have a, a seat on Security Council and so on, because uh, that's above our station now. Now, I said that provocatively, of course, and it's enraged everybody uh, on all sides. But I think there's something in it that for a nation to be, in John Major's memorable phrase, at ease with itself, it should be trying to be what it can be, the best of what it can be, but what mm. it can be. And, and that is not a superpower. No, we can make huge contributions to the world and go on doing them. But is it really by, I think we're being a bit nostalgic and that's a, a dangerous thing in politics. And finally, in your lockdown list, your top tip was very much related to ambition because it related to success. 
do not equate applause with success. Give some advice to listeners in terms of what that might mean for their lives. Well, I'm sure your listeners don't need my tips, but if you, I've noted how many times in my life people have said, hooray, you've done the, you've got the new job, absolutely wonderful, you've won the new scholarship, and, uh, and I felt that I've done my job by getting the applause. It's actually getting those things and using them and making something of them, which will last, even if nobody really notices. Back to um, Mr. Lampedusa, the baron of whatever he was of Lampedusa, to have written that book, even though he never saw it published, was mm. something that most of us wouldn't mind. So is, is this back to the idea of treating those two imposters just the same? I mean, is, is this the, the, really the conclusion about ambition, is that it might well be something that is a lure, but not necessarily a destination. I think so. Clichés are usually true, but they become clichés because they're true. <laughs> that, <laughs> that one is as true as, as ever it was. The gloomy old Greeks said, can't nobody happy until they're dead, by which they meant, don't look at the story until it's over. You can't really tell until it's over whether that's been successful or not. Build something that is that is satisfying because it's, it's the right craftsman-like piece of work. Mm. But, but I sense this is a story which is going to go on and on in our relationship with ambition. Willie Mordegrave, thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers. And that's it for another episode. Thank you, Mark.